Thank you, everyone, for coming out on a warm November evening. This is uh, the Henry Wendt the Third Lecture, sponsored by East Asian Studies uh, at our university. It's also a Princeton University public lecture series lecture that has the support of the Stafford Little Fund. Our guest tonight is Ian Baruma, who is Henry Luce Professor of Democracy, Human Rights, and Journalism at Bard College. Ian, in the early 1970s, studied classical Chinese at Leiden University, and later in the 1970s, did postdoctoral studies in Japanese at Nihon University in Tokyo, and then launched a rapid and brilliant career of writing books and journalistic pieces about East Asia, Europe, and other parts of the world. Many of you, I know, are his fans already, so I don't need to summarize what his range is, but just to uh, remind you all of the titles of his books, just to, to whet your appetites. Behind, Behind the Mask, 1983, God's Dust, 1988, Playing the Game, 1990, The Wages of Guilt, 1995, The Missionary and the Libertine, 1997, Anglomania, A European Love Affair, 1999, Bad Elements, uh, 2001, Inventing Japan, 2003, and Occidentalism, the West in the Eyes of Its Enemies, last year. Uh, there aren't very many holes in Ian's coverage of the world. If you look carefully, at least I think I can find, he doesn't mention Botswana, Tasmania, the Seychelles, or Winnipeg very much. Um, but all kidding aside, Ian's work for all of its breadth also has remarkable depth, and this is partly because he is so good with languages. His CV lists English, Dutch, French, German, Japanese, and Chinese. And I infer from that order, which is not alphabetical order, that he must be listing them in order of proficiency, in which case Chinese is his sixth best. I had the pleasure a few years ago of hearing him do an interview with the distinguished Chinese writer Su Xiaokang in Chinese, and I have to say that to hear him do so well in his sixth best language made me astounded, not to say a little bit envious. Ian is, as we all know, a public intellectual. I study China, and China for centuries has had this kind of role the intellectual who stands forth and says what he thinks is right under the principle of yi tian xia wei ji ren, taking responsibility for the whole world. Um, uh, the West, it seems to me, 60 to 80 years ago had more of this kind of public intellectual than we do now. The ones that we have now aren't very many. They write in all of the places where Ian writes, the New York Review of Books, the New York Times Magazine, the New Yorker, the New Republic, the Guardian, and so on. I know many of you in the audience read in there and have your impressions, and everybody's impressions of this uh, complex thinker may be different, but just in my last two minutes, I want to tell you my impression, other than, of course, his remarkable breadth of interest and competence. And that's, I don't know quite how to say this, but uh, except to say it bluntly, Ian thinks even when you think you've achieved a result that you're proud of, he somehow pushes beyond. I want to quickly give you two examples of this. Um, a few years ago, 1997, some of the students on our campus here, Chinese students, wanted to have a 60th uh, 
anniversary conference on the Nanjing Massacre of 1937 and invited the Chinese-American writer Iris Chang, author of The Rape of Nanjing, to come and invited Ian because of his book uh, Wages of Guilt about Germany and Japan looking back at the war. And I think there's no question that Ian, that the whole conference was based on looking at this horrible event and Ian shared that general spirit, of course, but asked Iris Chang and thereby all of us this kind of question, is this really the badge that you want for your Chinese or Chinese-American identity? Uh, aren't there happier and finer things about China to choose as your emblem? So he went to the edge where we all were and pushed beyond. My second example, and then I'll be quiet, is last year, Ian and I both spoke at Skidmore College on contemporary China. And I had a spiel that I often make about how one of the crises that faces China today is its values vacuum, with Confucianism discredited and socialism collapsed. People, well, there's a kind of a devil take the hindmost, get rich quick, as fast as you can mentality, but beneath that, the culture is groping for some kind of uh, public morality that it can share the way it used to share. And I thought I made a good point, and I still think I do. And I think Ian shares that. But he again pushed on, and when the students started asking questions later, reminded them, and through them me, that uh, zeal in pursuit of moral codes also has its dangers, as a few 20th century examples in history show us, and that we should keep a place as well for long-haired, refractory, pot-smoking, bad book-reading kinds of dissidents as a sort of counterweight. So again, he was where all of us were, but pushed ahead. And I think, if you listen carefully, that's the kind of thing you're going to hear tonight. I've put on the board here the announcement of a lecture he'll give tomorrow afternoon as well at 4.30 in Jones Hall. You're all welcome to come to that. But for tonight, his topic is, uh, is democracy a universal value? Thank you very much for those uh, much too kind words. Um, you have no, no idea um, about things I don't know, and I'm not going to tell you about those tonight. Um, instead, I'll talk about democracy. Um, one of the most notorious statements of the 20th century was made by General Douglas MacArthur to the United States Congress in 1951. He likened Japan to a nation of 12-year-olds. This was commonly interpreted as a racist slur, not least in Japan, where the old line was actually very popular. It was certainly condescending, but MacArthur did not mean to be insulting. He was comparing Japan to Germany. The latter, in his view, as a European nation steeped in Christian civilization, should have known better than to descend into barbarism. The fact that a mature white 